0: This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a sovereign grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O Or you can search Berean Sovereign Just Berean Sovereign And you will see our messages there also May the Lord bless your hearing And may he serve you for his sake For Christ's sake And for the sake of his gospel And now to our gospel teaching The Lord taught me the gospel This morning, in a way that I, is just amazing. I was showering with Tawanda, and I was changing the settings. And I realized too late that I had it on the very hot settings. And I had to shield the hot water with my own back. (laughs) With my own back. Tawanda, in the meantime, is just busy playing. He is clueless about what is happening. And at that moment, it hit me that the Lord was teaching me the gospel. Like, this is what Christ did. You took the hot water of God's wrath on your behalf, and you are clueless of what actually happened. So praise the Lord for that moment. He, He never stops to teach. If we just listen, he teaches in very simple things, because the gospel is a very simple message Let's go before the Lord in prayer. O oh, dear Heavenly Father and King, we come before your holy throne again and as always in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is Lord and He is our Savior. We did not make Him Lord. We did not make Him our Savior. He said this. And as we had the testimony yesterday that a redeemer is no redeemer if he actually did not redeem anyone. And a savior is no savior if he did not save anyone. But we know this, that Jesus Christ is savior because he saved his people from their sins. And that's the testimony of scripture. And Lord, may this be the testimony of your people. That they now stand righteous before you. Not because of what they have done or would do, but because of what Christ accomplished on their behalf. So, Lord, we pray that you speak to your people. You speak the gospel into the hearts of your people that they may see themselves in Christ. That they may see their life hid in Christ. Their life in Christ. Their righteousness in Christ. Their awe in Christ Christ. Because Christ is all. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful moment of being gathered to attempt to worship you. For you, Lord, are the only one who can render worship to yourself. We are only trying to worship you. And Lord, we pray that you accept our worship for the sake of Christ. Help us, Jesus. May you help us by your spirit. Help your people to see you as their only hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 27, Matthew 27, verses 57 to 66. The message is going to spill over into part of Matthew 28, but we'll read that part of Matthew when we get to it. For now, we're going to read Matthew twenty seven fifty seven to 66, and then we are going to read the account of Luke of the same story From Luke 23, verses 50 to 56. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Luke 23, verses 50 to 56. Luke 23, verses 50 to 56. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and did that is, of crucifying Christ. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. The word of the Lord. Someone title, Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and the Gospel. Or, I'll be giving this one away. The death and resurrection of Joseph, of Arimathea in Jesus. The death and resurrection of Joseph in Jesus. As I noted at the beginning, I have an obligation to preach the gospel and no other. Do not assume to know Jesus and do not assume to know the gospel. There's only one person who can teach you the gospel and it's not me. It's God. They shall be taught of God. It's God who teaches the gospel. I'm just an instrument. If I'm saying the truth, I'm just an instrument in his hands. Ask God to teach you the message of the gospel and to receive it. And when you have had it, to believe it, to cherish it, to proclaim it, to defend it, to love it, and to always be searching for it. Do not get weary of hearing about the gospel. Do not get weary of Christ because he never got weary of your sin. Never. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope that you and I have. That's the only thing we have. Honestly speaking, the righteousness of Christ is the only thing that you have. And nothing else. You have not enough time left to work out your own salvation. Even if it were up to you, there's not enough time between now and the grave, between now and eternity, between now and your judgment is far too late. The day is far spent. You have no more time. You should have started on the day that you were conceived, if that was going to be your route to salvation. Of all things that you are and have, there's nothing that can come for you to help you in the time of your greatest need. And that is the time that you're going to meet with Christ because he is the judge of the living and the dead. He has an appointment. God has appointed Christ to be the judge of all men. And that's what we are all doing here. We are preparing to meet with our maker, our savior. And praise be to God, our judge is also our advocate. And that's the hope of the gospel. And he is our wisdom. You have no wisdom whatsoever. You have no idea how to talk to a holy God. Christ knows how. So that is why Apostle Paul says, by his doing we are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. That's very purposeful because you and I are foolish. We need the wisdom of Christ. He speaks righteousness. He speaks holiness. He speaks all those things on your behalf before God. Okay, so this message, when we preach it correctly, has nothing to do with what is happening in our life at this moment. Zero. It's about heavenly matters. Because we do not belong here, we are just strangers. We are pilgrims. I'll tell people. I don't know if I was telling Brian or Mike or both that when I went to Zimbabwe, I didn't realize it until I got back that I, for a minute, lived like a pilgrim. I was operating from my suitcase. <laughs> I didn't have a house of my own. I didn't have a car of my own. I was changing my clothes in a suitcase. Going out and eating at all kinds of places and coming back. Why? I didn't have any commitment in Zimbabwe because I knew I had my ticket that in two weeks' time, I'll be at the airport and I'm flying back. And I was so happy. I was having a good time. I didn't worry about everything that was happening in Zimbabwe. Why? Because My mind was not there. My hope is not in Zimbabwe. And so those who are of Christ, they are pilgrims. We have to be operating from our suitcases. Why? Because we know we have our tickets that have been fully paid to go where we actually belong. So Jesus is the only one who is able to stand before God on our behalf to plead our case and say, Oh, well, don't bring that up because I paid for it. That's the only way. I paid for that. I paid for every one of her sins and no one can bring a charge against God's elect. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So let us not cheapen the gospel by our silliness, by reducing it to things that men can do with our own hands. And when we talk about hope and we say the gospel, is our only hope. We are not talking about weather forecasting here. We are not hoping that it does not rain tomorrow. We are not talking about probability here. We are talking about that which is certain, that which is accomplished, that is reserved, that is irreversible, and that is imperishable in Christ Jesus. That is the hope of the gospel. The righteousness of Christ That we possess by faith is the hope of the gospel. So if you do not have Christ, you have nothing. If you have Christ, you have all, as I said. Because Christ is all and in all. So remember who we are, brothers and sisters. Remember who we are by nature. We are sinners that cannot pay for our own sins. We have no ability whatsoever to render to God what God requires of us. And let us not forget that because I think we tend to forget that. And somehow we mistaken our own goodness and that is God's grace working through us and then we think we can actually be good before God. Like, oh, I wish God was just looking at me. I was so good today. <laughs> and we get used to Jesus dying for our sins, and we forget what that actually means. We need to hear more and more about Jesus. We need to put in a Jesus IV into our veins, because as we were singing, we are prone to wander and to leave the God who saved us. And this is when we begin to reduce the message of the cross to all the nonsense and the silliness that we come up with that has nothing to do with the gospel itself. But the hope that we have in Christ is an everlasting righteousness that comes with an everlasting life. Jesus does not cut coupons. Jesus does not clip coupons. He gives us the full package of salvation. Jesus does not give you sanctification and not give you holiness. He cannot give you holiness and not give you justification. He gives everything in one package. And the teaching that, well, you need Jesus for justification, but sanctification is what you do yourself is a lie. It can't be true. Because if Christ leaves you anything to do, guess what? You're going to hell. If God requires it for salvation, and Christ leaves 1%, 0.1%, whatever percentage, you are tossed. And I continue to use this, and Sarah, we have to ask me again what I meant by that. You are tossed, you are tossed, whichever way, it works. <laughs> so this is my point. My point is that do not think that you have had too much of Jesus, and it's time for Jesus to get off the stage that you may get on. We must forever be decreasing that Christ may increase. You have hear me. Do not get so used to Jesus that you think you need to share the stage with him. And when men begin to bring messages of, well, you have to help Jesus in your salvation. They are saying, it's time for you to get on the stage and share the stage with Jesus. That can't be it. We decrease in the face of Jesus and we have Christ increasing the more that we hear about the cross. Jesus remains on the stage. Jesus shall always be on the stage. Why? Because God has already given him a name that is above every name. A name that is above every name of all things that can be named, if you had to give a name, there's no name that can be given that is above the name of Christ. What is that saying? It's saying Christ is God. <laughs> there is no name that is that can be given above the name of Christ. And because of the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is our life, our righteousness, our surety, our covenant, our forerunner. He's our forerunner. The Lord willing, I shall talk one day on what it means for Jesus being the forerunner from the book of Hebrews and work the theology of that. He is our forerunner. He has gone through everything that you and I could ever do. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that you're going through that Jesus Christ has not gone through himself. He's our forerunner. Okay, He has gone before us. He is our mediator, our high priest. He is the high priest of our confession. He is the throne of grace. When the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace. It's Christ who is the throne of grace. It's Christ who is on the throne. And what a lot of people don't get is that the invitation to come boldly to the throne of grace is only for those who are in Christ. And a time is coming that Jesus will not be sitting on the throne of grace. He shall be sitting on the throne of judgment. So this is the time today to approach him whilst he's still sitting on the throne of grace. Hear me? Christ on the throne of grace. Because the time is coming that he shall change thrones. And he becomes a judge. So praise the Lord. And this Jesus was always preaching the gospel. This gospel in his life and his death. And God has been preaching and bragging about his son from eternity. And in all the pages of the Bible. God's main concern is the work of his son. The glory of his son. And so he has. Meticulously. Been preaching him. In many many amazing ways. And as I am fond of saying. Only God can preach Christ. And so this is a communion teaching. And that was the introduction. And we always preach the gospel. <laughs> so we go to the gospel. <laughs> Jesus was born to die, not as an abused child. Jesus did not go on the cross because of cosmic child abuse. But he went on the cross as the glorified son of God. And he knew it. And as his time had come, as his appointment with the cross, his appointment with death had come, This is what he said in John 12, verses 23 and 24. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. So this is Jesus' understanding of glorification. Jesus has to be glorified by his death, On the cross, and this time was fixed by God from eternity right to the split second. Jesus went on the cross right to the split second. He said, when I have been lifted up, I will draw all men, the elect, to myself. So Jesus has to be lifted up and he has to be sown into the ground as a grain of wheat. And according to Jesus' understanding, the grain of wheat cannot produce any fruit unless it first dies. You will have to bury. When you know a little bit about agriculture and plants, you bury the seed into the ground, and the seed, after having been buried, it germinates. And then the plant grows and bears more fruit. The grain of wheat, according to Jesus' Remains alone if you just have one grain, and if you don't bury it in the ground, it remains alone. It cannot multiply. So if Jesus does not die, he remains alone. You cannot come to Jesus. He remains alone. He says it multiplies when it germinates, like I said, and grows in the plant that produces more seed. And Jesus says that is a picture of him and his work of salvation. All creation declares the glory of Christ. If Jesus does not die, there could not be salvation. His righteousness could not be made available to any because he had to first pay for the ransom price so as to release us from death. So he has to be buried. There is no exchange of persons. If you know anything about ransom, and people getting kidnapped, there's no exchange, there's no freedom, before the ransom payment has been made in full. So if Jesus does not germinate from the ground, that is, resurrect from the ground, it means there's no salvation, because the ransom payment he made for sin, would not have been accepted. And there's no resurrected life to give to anybody. Because we possess The resurrected life of Christ. The resurrected life of Christ. And there could not be righteousness for others to partake and eat from. So he has to die. And on this day, we are working our background to our text. He has to die. And on this day, this Passover day, the 14th of Nisan, Jesus has been raised on the altar of the cross. The cross is the altar where Christ is being sacrificed as God's lamb for the sins of his people. He has been raised on the altar of the cross as the spotless Passover lamb of God that takes away the sin of his people. Pilate, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Jews, a Herod, they have all gathered together against the Lord's anointed but by God's determination. The cross was no random work accomplished by some people who did not have cable TV. Some people who had nothing else to do. No, the cross was not the idea of man. It was not the idea. They did not put Jesus on the cross because they hated him. Yes, they did because of their hatred, but the cross is not an idea of man. That's God's idea. Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. That's the word of the Lord. No man could come up with the cross as a way of atonement or reconciliation with God. Because the cross is foolishness and a rock of stumbling. The cross is foolishness. If we remove the cross of Christ, we remove the offense. And if we remove the offense, we are not preaching Christ. And we have no gospel. And we are believing a lie and we are going to hell. Because the cross of Christ is the difference between hell and glory. And nothing else. There's only one thing that stands between you and hell is the cross of Christ, is the blood of Christ, is Jesus Himself. So to preach the cross is to preach Jesus. If you are going and listening to sermons, if you want to hear whether there's the gospel Hear what they say about Jesus. How much they make of the person and work of Jesus. Are they saying Christ is your only righteousness that is acceptable before God? If they are saying that, then they are preaching Christ. And so this is where we are. This is where we are. The Roman soldiers have given him, that's Jesus, sour wine. And they have pierced him on the side. And blood and water have gushed out. They have divided his garments to fulfill the scriptures. But they did not say, oh, wow, since Jesus is here, what a beautiful garment. Let us take his garment that we may fulfill scriptures. No, it was above their silly heads. (laughs) They did not know anything about it. But they are in God's hands. But Jesus has given up the ghost. They did not break his legs. Unlike the two thieves, they could not break his legs. He was not a sinner. Jesus' legs could not be broken. Jesus could not die because of what men did to him. Jesus did not die because of the cross itself. Jesus did not die because of some silly nails that were on his in his hands. This is what Jesus said in John 10, 18. He says, talking about his life, he says, no one takes it from me. The nails did not take away the life of Christ. The Jews, the Romans, no one took the life of Christ on the cross. He said, but I lay down of myself. Myself. I have power to lay down and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. So Jesus achieved his own death. Because no man, no creature has power to take away the life of one who is the son of God. (laughs) Impossible. Jesus had to die before the two thieves. This is a very important nugget. Jesus had to die before the two thieves so that they could die. There's no way in the scripture, in the Bible, where anybody ever died in the presence of Jesus. Nowhere. You go look for it. There's nobody who ever died in the presence of Jesus. So if the two thieves have to die, Jesus has to go first. Or else they'll remain on the, on the cross. Just gasping. Trying to breathe. <laughs> but after Jesus had died, guess what? They broke their legs and boom, they're gone. <laughs> but Jesus has to be buried. The scriptures have to be fulfilled. Isaiah 53:9. Jesus has to be buried. And our gospel message is going to center around the burial of Jesus. In Isaiah 53:9, Isaiah writes by inspiration and says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. We have to answer a question. Who are the rich men who were With Jesus at his death. It was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus was a rich guy. Nicodemus was a ruler of the synagogue. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was an extremely educated Jew because he had a Greek name and he went by a Greek name. Very unusual. If Jews who were very affluent, who were very educated, who had Greek names, who went by Greek names. So Nicodemus, just in the name of Nicodemus, you get a bit of detail about the person of Nicodemus. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are the two guys who came and took the body of Jesus and buried it. And these are the men that Isaiah is prophesying of. <laughs> And we are already told that Joseph of Arimathea was rich, right? The text already says that Joseph of Arimathea was rich. And he was so rich that he had already cut out his own grave, yun, out of stone. It looks like he had all his 401k, everything organized, just planning for his life. (laughs) Matthew 27, 57 to 16. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So how did, just intermission, how did Joseph of Arimathea become a disciple of Jesus without giving up his wealth? Because a lot of people say the rich young ruler, he lost salvation because he did not give up his money. How did Joseph of Arimathea become a disciple of Jesus and remain rich? <laughs> it's just a question. <laughs> Verse 58. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rode a large stone, against the door of the tomb and departed. Jesus was on the cross nine in the morning. And about evening time, about 6 p.m., close to 6 p.m., Joseph of Arimathea came secretly, according to John 19, verse 38. And he came boldly, according to Mark fifteen forty-three. So Joseph of Arimathea, he was a Pharisee, He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was in the same mode as Nicodemus. He came to Pilate. He had access to Pilate. You have to be somebody to have access to Pilate. So he is, the text says he was a respected member of the council. So he's some congressman at the minimum. And he asked Pilate that he may take the body of Jesus to bury it. But according to John 19, the Jewish leaders had also gone to Pilate to ask for permission that the legs of Jesus and those of the two thieves be broken to expedite their deaths. Because the Jews thought having crucified bodies at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a Sabbath that was the next day, would desecrate that feast. We are going to be talking about that. The days, the connection of what day Jesus actually died in the context of God's overall teaching on the fish. We're going to connect some of that today. You need to be able to connect that because there's a lot of tradition around it. But we have the scriptures on our side. Okay. But as we land, when the soldiers came to break their legs, that is the legs of Jesus and the two thieves, Jesus was already dead. Okay? Jesus was already dead. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member, a council member of the Sanhedrin, had this testimony of himself. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the Messiah. Okay? He came, the text says, coming and taking courage. He came And with boldness and with courage, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, not Joseph Smith. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. And so not all Pharisees rejected Jesus. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were Pharisees who were looking forward to the coming of the kingdom. So Joseph was bold. To come and ask for the body of a condemned man. Now we're going somewhere. Joseph of Arimathea had the the boldness to come and ask for the body of this condemned man. He identified with the sentence of this condemned man. He identified with the condemnation of Jesus. And now... He has to identify with the burial of Jesus. But you see, Joseph of Arimathea could not risk his reputation to take the body of a condemned man. Could not do that. You could not do that. He is in union with Christ. And union is identity. Union is identity. He sees himself in the condemnation and the burial Of Christ, it's gonna come come out clear. It's come come out clear. Jesus has taken the identity of Joseph of Arimathea by entering into his condemnation by the Jews and Pilate, and ultimately by God Himself. It's union language. It's identity. Joseph's identity is in Christ. Christ has taken Joseph into Himself. And because Joseph is in Christ, he identifies with the death of Christ, with the condemnation of Christ. And his identity is affirmed by his boldness to go and take the condemned body of Christ and burying it. Let's keep working. Jesus has taken his sin and condemnation upon himself. And in turn... That union shows itself in what Joseph of Arimathea did. He is willing to suffer the shame of identification with Christ even into his own grave. We are going somewhere. Even into his own grave. (laughs) Remember the chief priests and the Pharisees were already mocking even those from their own ranks who were sympathetic to Christ and calling them deceived. And Nicodemus was among those that apparently had been deceived by Jesus. Remember John 7. If you still remember, John 7, 45 to 52 is very important. We need that background so that we may see clearly what God is teaching from this story. Let's go to John 7, 45 to 52. Then the officers came. Then the officers came. To the chief priests and Pharisees. Who said to them. Why have you not brought him? The officers answered. No man ever spoke like this man. And I think brother Lou and brother Mike. Had some commentary a few days. On on these verses. No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them. Are you also deceived? Listen to verse 48. Have any of the rulers. Or the Pharisees believed in him. But this crowd that does not know the law is against Nicodemus. He who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, (laughs) said to them, does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? You see, Nicodemus is also in union with Christ. He is starting to defend Christ. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Which means, are you also a deceiver? Are you also deceived? (laughs) Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So, apparently, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had been deceived or brainwashed by Jesus. And had put their reputation on the line for the sake of Jesus. And this was very good deception indeed. Oh, what a deception. What a beautiful deception to be deceived by Jesus into believing the gospel. (laughs) They were fools for Jesus. And I pray that God would brainwash you today. That you may believe the gospel because you need some brainwashing. Your brain needs some serious washing. Some serious deception. Oh, Lord Jesus. (laughs) But we have been told this. We have been told that Joseph of Arimathea was looking, he was waiting for the kingdom. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. If Joseph of Arimathea thought he was just taking the body of Jesus and burying it and giving it a decent burial, then he was doing more than what he understood. Joseph of Arimathea was fulfilling scripture. As we read from Isaiah 53, 9, that his grave was made with the wicked, right? But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So in burying Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea was fulfilling scripture, but he did not think he was fulfilling scripture either. He was oblivious to it. But listen to this. Joseph did not just bury Jesus. If Joseph only buried Jesus, I would not be talking about this story at all. And I don't think God would have recorded it in the Bible. Joseph did not just bury Jesus. He buried him in his own tomb that he had prepared for his own burial. He never saw that coming. That's God's sovereignty. That's God's absolute sovereignty. And by this, God gave testimony to the sinlessness of Christ. Because Christ was buried in a tomb that no man had ever been laid in. Just as He in his triumphal entry, he rode a donkey that no man had ever sat on. First Samuel six seven. First Samuel six seven. If you want to hear the expanded message from First Samuel six, it's called The Mystery of the Golden Mice and the Golden Chumas. It's a beautiful message. I love it. Mike listened to it a few maybe two weeks ago, maybe. But it comes from that. First, Psalm 6-7. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now, therefore, this is instruction that is being given for the repatriation of the ark of the Lord that had been captured by the Philistines. Now, therefore, make a new cut. This is what the prophets of the Philistines had. Of course, it's God who was giving them that. <laughs> Take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart and take their cows home away from them. These instructions were for returning the ark of the Lord and to make atonement to the Philistines because God was killing them in their thousands for having captured the ark of the Lord. And the instruction was the ark had to be on a new cart. New, new cart. Never used in carrying other things. Be pulled by two cows that had never pulled any burdens. A type of being free from sin. Or type of being free from being yoked to sin. And it is the same with the unleavened bread. Bread without yeast. Yeast is a type of influence. Yeast is influence. You put a little bit to the door and the door rises. A little leaven leavens the whole lamp. A little sin makes you 100% a sinner. Okay. So it is the same teaching with the animal sacrifices without spots or blemishes. But what were those about? They're all pointing to the sinlessness of Christ. That's the point. So the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 7.26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So Jesus was separate from sinners. He was holy, he was undefiled, and therefore could not be laid down in a grave that a sinner had already been laid in. Jesus could not be laid in a tomb in which death had already had victory he needed a new and fresh encounter with death and to beat it down at its own game and at home. So Jesus came. He gave death a home advantage. Like, okay, I'm coming to your home and I'm going to overcome you at your own house, at your own game. But remember, there's no death in heaven. So Jesus had to come down to earth, the place of death. And to be born of a woman that he may be subject to law and death. See what is happening. He has to condescend to the grave. He has to condescend to being put in the grave. Verse 59 and 60 of Matthew 27. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Joseph of Arimathea had to give up his grave. That Jesus may enter in first. Okay. Don't make it like... This is too glorious. Okay. Joseph of Arimathea had to give up his grave. That Jesus may enter it first. Why? If Joseph had been buried... And a large stone had been rolled against the door of his own tomb. That would have been the end of Joseph. End of Joseph. His hope for the kingdom would have been crushed to pieces. Why? Because the rolling of the stone is the summary statement of the law and its judgment on the one who is buried under it. We're going to keep working that. I have a lot of things to say about it. It's glorious. The law says the sword that sins, it must die. And without blood, without sinless blood, there's no remission of sin. Because it is blood that makes atonement. The law would keep Joseph dead forever until he found a ransom payment. And so what happened? This is, this is God's solution to Joseph's problem. It is not Joseph who entered into his own grave. It is Jesus who went into Joseph's grave as his substitute. Hear me. It's substitutional atonement. To do what? That he may remove the case of the law that was on Joseph's grave. Jesus has to go in that he may conquer death and remove its sting. It is the case of the law that killed Jesus and it is the same case that is on joseph it is the same case that sealed the grave but jesus enters into the place of joseph as his substitute and he overcomes death on his behalf you see the gospel did he not overcome death on behalf of joseph of arimathea second corinthians 5:21 2 corinthians 5:21 says for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ, who knew no sin, took the place of Joseph. Not just on the cross, but also in the burial place, in the grave. And Jesus says, death, bring the best that you have, and I'll give you my very best punch. I'll kill you, and in place of you, I'll put what is in me, my life. And so Joseph of Arimathea was buried with Jesus. He could not be buried with Jesus unless he had died with Jesus. So he died with Jesus. He was buried with Jesus. And guess what? He was resurrected with Jesus. Because he too was in the grave by union with Christ. He died and was buried with Christ. And the righteousness of Christ was imputed, was charged to Joseph, and Joseph lived. So Joseph was compelled by God to preach the gospel by the bearing of Jesus in his own grave. He did not know it, but God does not need the knowledge of Joseph to preach Christ. (laughs) He doesn't need Joseph. (laughs) Joseph of Arimathea preached the gospel in spite of himself. He has to preach the gospel, okay? Let's go to the next chapter of Matthew 27. But the story continues into chapter 27. Is it the next chapter or what? Uh, Where does verse 61? Verse 61, is that in Matthew 27 or in Matthew 28? Okay, so let's continue with verses 61 to 66. Because it's very glorious. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. On the next day, the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to Pilate and asked Pilate that the tomb of Jesus be secured. Why? Because Jesus, whom they called the deceiver, had claimed that he would rise again after three days. Jesus had told them over and over again about the sign of Jonah. Jesus had said to the Jews, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Jesus had said to the Jews, In John Chapter 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And they thought that was deception. So they wanted the power and authority of Rome, as it were, through Pilate, because Pilate is the representative of Rome, to enforce and secure the tomb, lest Jesus would rise and cause even a worse deception than before. And that was their narrative of Jesus. But I have a question to ask the Pharisees and the chief priests. If Jesus could actually rise after having been dead, would that not prove that he actually was not a deceiver? Just wondering and thinking out loud. So Pilate gave them a guard and they went on their way and they made it secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard over it. What is that saying? That is the full force of the law that is on Christ. The Pharisees and the chief priests are representatives of the law. And the law guards Jesus that he may not come out. Follow me. The law guards Jesus that he may not come out. The God, Rome, gives us a picture of the power of the law of a one who is dead. The Lord guards all those who are dead without Christ that they may not rise without ever paying what the Lord demands. I'm going somewhere. The God is stationed not to alert people that Jesus is coming out of the grave, but to kill him so that he will never come out alive. That's the instruction. The God is stationed to kill Jesus if he ever comes out of the grave. Because people cannot hear about his resurrection, they should not hear that he even rose from the dead. So they have to put him to death right away. That's the instruction. And these are Roman guards, and they are not afraid to do that. They have already pierced Jesus on the side. They have already broken the legs of the two thieves. That's their instruction. Okay. So the Roman guard. Actually, if you read, I'm not sure if it's... Look, one of the gospels say there were two gods. The Roman gods is not stationed to welcome Jesus with chocolate and flowers when he comes out. (laughs) But to make sure that he stays dead. And so, what is that saying? It is saying the law and the power of the law, the letter kills. The letter is a ministration of condemnation is a ministry of death and not life. The law demands that a sinner should stay dead in their grave. It does not help you to get out. It stands over you and it seals you down into the earth to remain dead. And if Joseph of Arimathea was in that tomb by himself, he would have stayed dead. The tomb was secured and sealed. That's what the text says. The tomb was secured and sealed and it was guarded. Praise the Lord. He found a substitute who entered into his grave as his forerunner and savior. Okay. The substitute and forerunner who tested death on his behalf that he would never have to test death himself. And unless every jot and tittle of the law has been satisfied on your behalf, the testimony of the law is you still have the Roman guards over your grave. That's the testimony of the law. The law still demands your death. The law still demands your death. And it is so good at it that it has secured your grave. You shall not escape from the demands of the law The Lord demands your death unless someone dies in your place and they overcome the law. Are we not talking gospel? Are we not talking gospel? This is what I'm saying. You need Jesus to enter into your grave first. And to enter in union with you that you also may overcome the Roman gods and their spears. That you may overcome the case of the law, that you may overcome the Pharisees and the chief priests who want you to stay dead. Okay, Do you hear me? But if Jesus is raised from the grave, what do we have to say to Joseph of Arimathea? If Jesus is raised from the grave, we go to Romans 8 verse 1 to 4. You're going to hear it in a different spin. (laughs) If Jesus is raised from the grave, what do we Say to Joseph of Arimathea. There is therefore. Now no condemnation. To those who are. In Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. No condemnation. For Joseph of Arimathea. Why? Because he is in Christ. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea is in Christ Jesus and no condemnation for him. Imagine just being buried in your own grave first. And this is what has already happened, friends. It happened to Joseph of Arimathea and to all of us. Christ has already been buried together with us in our own graves. So the testimony of Christ with respect to the grave is our testimony. Joseph of Arimathea has found his who person. I love the who. When he went into his grave, when Jesus went into his grave with him. Joseph of Arimathea could have found all kinds of men to go into his grave with him. And those men were not going to rise. So he has found his who. And therefore there is no condemnation for those who have been buried with Jesus. Because they rose with him. And praise the Lord that Jesus was willing to enter into your grave with you. Because he did not have to. Remember. Also, that the grave was not his, but that of Joseph of Arimathea. If Jesus had been buried in his own grave, specifically, made for him, then that would have destroyed the gospel. Why? How? He had to be buried in a grave that was already hewn out for those who are subject to death. That's a very important theological statement. Jesus could not have his own grave specially designed for him because he was not a sinner. And not being a sinner, he was not subject to death. So he had no need of a grave. The only way that he could be buried was to be put in the grave of one who was already subject to death. Hear me? So he united himself to our death and our condemnation. And he also united us to his life and his justification. He died because our sins were put on him. He did not die because he was a sinner. And our sins were imputed. They were charged on him. And he suffered the penalty of these sins on our behalf. Verse 2 of Romans 8. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit and life in Christ set Joseph free from the law of sin and death. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee and he was therefore under the law of sin and death. The Pharisees, the chief priests, and the guards were the summary of the law that was on his grave. But in Christ he was set free The rock was rolled away so as to say the law had no one under it. Those who are in Christ, who died and resurrected with Christ, are not under the law of sin and death anymore. They escaped death from the hands of the law hidden in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus did not roll the stone to get away from the grave. He went through it. And the guards were still there guarding. And Jesus was not there. So what is that saying? It is saying Jesus is not under the power of the law. So the believer who is in Christ is also not under the power of the law. Because they escaped and the law did nothing to them. Do you hear me? The believer is not under the law. You escaped the condemnation of the law. The law saw it. And had nothing to say about it. (laughs) Why? Because the law was satisfied with the death of Christ. The law was satisfied with the death of Christ. So as far as God is concerned, when God looks at our graves, he sees our tombs empty. If you say you are still under the law, you are saying that large piece of rock is yet to be rolled away from you. That's what you're saying. If you claim to be under the law, you are saying the condemnation of the law is still sitting on you. The rock is still sitting on you and you still need a savior. But that's not my gospel. (laughs) I don't preach that gospel. Verse 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, still Romans 8. In that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Joseph of Arimathea would not, would have been weak to overcome the gravestone. He would have been powerless to overcome the seal on his grave. He would have been powerless to overcome two Roman soldiers with swords. Having been buried for more than three days, he did not have the strength to do it. He was weak in the flesh because of sin. <laughs> but Jesus stepped in, he who was in his likeness, but without sin, and condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law, our death, may be fulfilled in us. Jesus stepped in and walked away from the law of sin and death because we walked away with him. We walked away in Jesus from the realm where the law has power. The law has no power over one who is in Christ Jesus because when the law sees Jesus, they see perfection. So when the law sees us in Christ, he sees perfection. It has no more requirements from us. All that the law required was met in him. That's what the gospel says. Matthew twenty-eight, one to six. brother Lou drove a very long way, so I have to give him some more Christ. Matthew twenty-eight, one to six says: Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and other and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. After the weekly Sabbath, the women had their first chance to come and anoint the body of Jesus. This is what is happening as far as the ordering of the days. According to my reading of the Bible and understanding of the different pieces that the Holy Spirit has provided, Jesus did not die on Friday. It's impossible that Jesus would die on Friday. Jesus said, no sign shall be given but the son of Jonah who was in the belly of the beast three days and three nights. Jesus is God. He's the one who created day and night. He knows how long a day is. Three days and three nights have to be fulfilled. If Jesus dies on Friday, as the church tradition goes, he was only in the grave Friday night to Saturday night. That's two nights. And when the women came to the grave, Jesus was already out. It doesn't say He rose at the time that they came. He was already gone. Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. And you have to know this detail. According to the Jewish reckoning of time, they counted their day from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Their day started at 6 the next day, 6 p.m. But to really understand what's going on, you need to know you have a knowledge of the feast, And we are going to teach it, We're not not interested about time. We're interested about knowing the truth. So it takes time for you to really understand what God actually teaches about the matter. In the week that Jesus died, there was a high day, according to John 19.31. That's the text that the church don't know what to do with it. John says this was a special Sabbath, a high day. That's John 19.31. And it happened once every year. In the week of the Passover, there were three Sabbaths. There were three. Before we get to the resurrection of Christ, there were two preparation days. Because there were two Sabbaths that happened. You had your regular Sabbath, the Saturday, which had the usual Friday as a preparation day. But whenever you had the Passover, the next day after the Passover, always by law, was a Sabbath. So Jesus died on a preparation day. That was the Passover. Jesus died on a day that was a preparation day for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for you to understand that, let's go to Leviticus 23. That's where God actually teaches it. But if we don't have that detail, we won't understand all these preparation days and all these Sabbaths. Because people think that when they hear Sabbath, automatically it has to be Saturday. No, it's not true. So go to Leviticus 23. Verses 4 to 8. So this is what it says. God is telling the children of Israel the appointed feasts, the appointed times. Feast in Hebrew just means appointed times. So these are the appointed times that God had given. They had very specific dates. The Passover had to begin on the 14th of the month of Nisan. And the day after that began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And because these two feasts were so connected to one another, when you read the Gospels, sometimes they just call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread and they collapse it into one feast. But there are two feasts that are so connected to each other they are only separated by a day. So listen to this. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, that's verse 4 of Leviticus 23, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month, that's the month of Nisan or Habib, at twilight, 6 p.m., is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day, that's the next day, of the same month, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat the unleavened bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread would go for seven days after the Passover. See that? Seven days. Verse 7, on the first day, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you shall have a holy convocation. And that is the high day. That is a Sabbath. And how do you know that? You shall do no customary work on it. You shall do no customary work on it. Verse 8, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day That is, at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was also another holy convocation. And you shall do no customary work on it. So this is what is happening. Jesus died on the Passover, the 14th. And because the Passover, it happens, the the Passover was a yearly feast. It only happened once a year. Once a year. But the feast of the Passover was always followed the next day by a Sabbath which was not the regular weekly Sabbath. Do you hear me? So this is what happened. I think John says Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they hurriedly took down the body of Jesus. Why? Because the Sabbath was approaching, right? Because the Sabbath was approaching. So they buried him so that they would not violate the Sabbath. Now we have a lot of clues from what the women did and did not do. If Jesus died on Friday, and Saturday was the Sabbath, then they did not have the spices. They did not have time to go buy the spices, because the scriptures say they went and bought and prepared spices. So if they went and bought and prepared spices, they could not have gone on Saturday because it was a Sabbath and the markets would have been closed. And according to the law, they were not supposed to handle money on a Sabbath. They could not do it. So the only time that they had to go and buy the spices was Friday. They went to the market on Friday. They bought the spices on Friday, and prepared them, rested on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, they're like, okay, now we go to the tomb. They go to the tomb, and Jesus is already risen. Let's work that some more. Let me give you a little bit more detail. Jesus dies. They take him down. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus before 6 p.m. Okay? That's the only way they would have done it. The Pharisees and the chief priests went to Pilate, went to Pilate the day after the day that Jesus had died, after the Sabbath day. Do you hear me? They went to Pilate. So there was no restriction for them to be able to go, given the nature of how the days were counted. There was 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. You hear me? So the next day, which was Thursday, Jesus died on Wednesday. On Thursday was the Sabbath, but the Sabbath ended Thursday evening. And the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate Thursday evening into Friday to ask for permission. Which Friday is the same Friday that the women also went and bought their own spices and prepared them. Then they rested on Saturday, and then on Sunday morning, they went to Jesus' grave. I have this written down. I didn't want to expand it as much as I did, but I'll work it some other time and just work out all the finer details and really lay it out. But my point is Jesus did not die on Friday. It's impossible. He died on Wednesday. That is what is in keeping with the knowledge of the feast. Also, read Exodus 12. It's very, very important to the institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it gives you some more detail on these feasts and how they connected with each other, okay? So anyway, the Bible tells us that there was a great earthquake after Jesus had died. Remember, there was a great earthquake when Jesus died. And then there was another one after he had died. An angel from heaven came and rode away the stone in the presence of the gods, So apparently, as I said, there were two gods. Jesus, their prisoner, had escaped. They did not see him, but he only showed himself to those that were appointed by God to see him. This is what the book of Acts says in Acts 10, verses 39 to 43. This is what it says. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Whom they killed by hanging on a tree, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, (laughs) but to witnesses chosen before by God. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whomever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So, the gods were not chosen to receive the revelation of Christ. That's election. Okay, Jesus had escaped because the law had no more power, no more hold on him. And if Jesus escaped the grave then Joseph of Arimathea also had escaped with Christ, and all those who were in Christ escaped with him. So, as we finish, let's talk more about Joseph of Arimathea in the grave. Jesus went into his grave for him, in his place. For what purpose? That he may overcome death for him. Because death is the case of the law. It is not the women or the guards who removed the tombstone from the grave of Jesus. For the women could not do that. The guards were there to keep it on. They were not there to remove the stone. And the women had no power to remove it. So the tomb and the guarding of it was a reminder Of the insurmountable power of sin, death, and law of a one who is a sinner. So when they got to the tomb, the large piece of rock had already been rolled away. But who rolled away the piece of rock? The text says the angel of the Lord rolled it away. But who rolled away the piece of rock? It is Not the angel of the Lord. It is God himself who rode it away. Because he was saying, look, my law has been satisfied. And it was impossible that this holy one would see corruption. And so the law had been rode away. Sin had been rode away. The curse of the law had been rode away. Death had been rolled away. Condemnation had been rolled away. All death where is thy sting. All death where is thy power. They have all been rolled away. And that's God's testimony of your life. That's God's testimony of your relationship to sin, law, and death. All rolled away in Christ Jesus. This one... Unlike Joseph, could not be overcome by sin and death. He could not be overcome by condemnation. This one is the light and the life of man. He is the resurrection and the life. But see the two kinds of reactions that happened there. The gods shook for fear of him, of the angel. And they became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. So there are two responses to those in respect to what Christ accomplished. Okay? Two responses with respect to the person and work of Christ. The guards were fearful. The guards were shaken. Because they were not in Christ. But for those whom Christ died, the women were given a message of hope and peace. Do not be afraid. He lives. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Whom you seek is alive. And that's God's message to all his people. Do not be afraid. And that is the message of the gospel. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid, little flock. Peace be still. God will quiet the hearts of all his people because Christ is risen. But those who are not shall be shaken because of fear. So why did Jesus die and resurrect? Why did Jesus die and resurrect? According to Romans 4.25, the apostle Paul writes and says, he who was delivered up Because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. So Jesus was delivered up to die on the cross because of our offenses, our sins, all our sins. And he was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Christ was God's testimony that Jesus had Fulfilled the law. Removed the curse. wrought away the curse. Overcame and removed the death that was in your grave and my grave. You who entered into your grave with him. Our full justification is in Christ Jesus. So do not let people mess you up and say, look to yourself. Look to your progress in repentance are you fully repented according to what measurement how are they measuring that the text says jesus was given over delivered because of our offenses which means he paid for every one of our offenses even our lack of perfection in our repentance Every sin of ours was put on him. And I'll tell you and I argue that we don't even know the majority of our sins. We don't. So what are we going to do with those sins that we do not know anything about? In the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice for the sins that were committed in ignorance. (laughs) In ignorance. So praise the Lord that we are covered on all ends. We are covered on our ends. There's no justification and there's no assurance to be found in you, period. You look to what Christ accomplished on the cross. You look to the grave. You look to the empty grave. You follow the trail of Jesus, and that is your trail. You look to Jesus laid with you in the grave. You see him overcoming death. You see him seated on the right hand of God. You look to the empty grave and its emptiness says there's nothing that now stands between you and God. There's nothing in there to bring a charge against you who died with Christ. And that is your story and that is your hope. Your story is forever joined to Christ. And that was the mystery of Joseph giving his grave to Jesus. That was the mystery. He could not just have done that. God had to be preaching the gospel. That was substitutionary atonement being displayed in the way that Jesus was even buried. We finish off this with a commentary from the book of Hebrews. I won't say anything after that. Hebrews 2, 9 to 15. Uh, If you believe a preacher, you are a fool. You are deceived. (laughs) Hebrews 2, 9 15. I thought it's a good commentary because the Holy Spirit put it in there. <laughs> but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. For what purpose? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might test death for everyone. For it was fitting for him. For whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shed in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime. Subject to bondage. So the testimony that you are free from death and the condemnation. Praise the Lord. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. So we're going to have communion. And Brother Robert, you do what you know what to do.